The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in the section of Scripture that we read at the beginning in the Gospel according to St. John in chapter 19, reading again from verse 31 to 37, verses 31 to 37 in the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath was on high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith there came out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. Now it always seems to me on a day such as this, on a Good Friday, that the first thing which we who call ourselves Protestants have to do is, if you like, uh, to justify our gathering together on such a day. We are the inheritors of the Protestant and of the Puritan tradition. And we remember that those great forefathers of ours put an end to the observance of days, including Good Friday, Christmas Day, Easter Sunday, and so on. And we undoubtedly are in agreement with them in what they did and what they decided. But I think it is important that we should bear in mind that much of what they did was determined by the peculiar conditions in which they found themselves. They, having just emerged from Roman Catholicism and its darkness, felt that the only safe way was to do away with everything that belonged to that outlook and to that mode of behavior. So they made a clean sweep of everything. And in that, undoubtedly, they were right. And yet here are we, their successors, having a service like this on a Friday morning, because it is Good Friday. Why do we do so? Can we justify our procedure? Well, I suggest that we can, and that it is indeed important that we should do this. Not that we are observing holy days. We don't believe in holy days. We don't believe in holy week. And it's a sign of the times that Protestantism is increasingly reintroducing those terms. I say we are not here because we regard this as a holy day, but we are here because it is surely a good and a right thing that we should at least once in the year remind ourselves of the historical character of our faith. And that, it seems to me, is the justification of a service such as this. Every day of the year, we believe in preaching Christian doctrine. 
including the doctrine of the cross and the death of our Lord. No man should ever enter a pulpit, in a sense, without somehow or another referring to it and dealing with it. The doctrines of salvation are to be preached always, not only on Sundays, but every day. And that is why I say that we can see that there is some special object and a special message in connection with this particular day. Because it does seem to me that this day, if it is to be used rightly, should not be used only in the way in which one normally preaches the gospel and the doctrine of the cross and the doctrines of salvation. The very fact that we come together this Friday morning should dictate to us that we should preach this truth in some unusual and in some special manner. And it is because these verses that I have already read to you and which I am taking as my text this morning uh, enable us and indeed compel us to do that. It is for that reason that I am calling uh, your attention to them. Very well then, what is their message? In order to be brief, I have divided the message of these words into two sections. They contain a general message and they contain a particular message. What is the general message then that is taught us by these words? Well, the first, I've already just mentioned it in passing, it is this. They remind us that our Christian faith is based solidly upon facts and events in history. Now, we need constantly to be reminded of that. We all need to be reminded of that. The danger always confronting us is to turn this gospel of salvation into a philosophy, into a teaching, into a matter of ideas. It is that. But before it is that, it is something that is a proclamation and an announcement of certain historical events that have taken place. And that is my main reason for having a service like this this morning. We are ever in danger of losing the facts. Many of you know who are interested in matters of theology that there is a powerful theological movement on the continent of Europe at the present time which is trying to do away with the facts altogether. They call it the demythologizing of the gospel. They say the facts don't count. It's the teaching that matters. It's the idea that matters. So they say the only thing that matters is that God is love and that God in his love is prepared to forgive us our sins. They say that's the thing that the world needs to know, that God is compassionate and is ready to forgive them their sins. To which we reply that the Jews... Therefore, because it was the preparation that the, that the bodies might not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, we are back again in history. And my contention is that there is no Christian faith apart from the bodies and the cross and Calvary and the two thieves and their broken legs and the sword and the side being pierced. Facts. Now then, we I come together, I say, in order to remind ourselves of that. That were it not for these events in history, there would be no Christian faith. 
It's not a philosophy. It's not a teaching. It is a proclamation that God has done something and done it in the field of history. As certainly as this country was conquered in 55 B.C. by Julius Caesar. So, at a given point in history, the Son of God came out of heaven into this world. And he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Do you, my friend, uh, pay sufficient attention to the facts? Do you remind yourself constantly, as you rejoice in the doctrine of the cross and of salvation, do you always take care to remind yourself that your glorious doctrine comes out of these things that were enacted literally, physically, in this world? That's the first message. The second general message is this one. The certainty of the facts. John, you remember, takes trouble to tell us this. He that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that you might believe. There is nothing more important for us than the certainty of the facts. If this is a fairy tale, if it is a story, if it is a vivid imagination, well then our faith is vain. As the Apostle Paul puts it about the resurrection, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Not only must we believe in the facts, but we must be sure and certain of our facts. And John here says, as he says in the next chapter, that he has recorded and written these things in order that we might believe and in order that we might have certainty and assurance. And let us therefore in passing Remind ourselves of that great truth this morning, that our whole position depends upon the witness and the testimony of these apostles. We must never say, I don't care what the Bible says, I have such and such a feeling or such and such an experience. Well, you can say that if you like, but anybody else can say the same thing about anything he likes. But that isn't Christianity. Christianity is based upon these facts preached, proclaimed, witnessed unto by these apostles. Well, says the Apostle Paul, the church herself is founded upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And here we are looking at the witness and the evidence and the testimony of the Apostle John. And that brings me to the third and the last of these general points which, is made, which are made by this message. And that is the peculiar nature of these facts. Were you struck by them as I read them? Have you been struck by them many a time as you've read them for yourselves? Why should this gospel trouble to give us these extraordinary details? It isn't a long gospel altogether. You can read it at one sitting. Why does it take the trouble to tell us about this request of the Jews and about the breaking of the bones of the thief on the right hand and the thief on the left, and why bother to tell us about this spear and the coming out of the blood and the water? Uh, what, what are these peculiar details, these facts? Uh, have they any significance, or are they mere irrelevances? Why does the apostle, I say, devote this space to them, this attention? Uh, why does he thus give a number of verses uh, to the enumeration of these strange and peculiar and odd details. 
Very well, I want to answer that question. And I want to answer that question by putting before you the second division, the particular messages which are conveyed to us by these particular verses. Why does John give us these extraordinary details? The first answer is undoubtedly this. It was to answer the enemies of the Christian faith. For at the very beginning, even in the earliest days of the church, there were false teachers, there were enemies. The Gospels themselves make that plain. The Epistles make it still more plain. There were people who hated Jesus Christ and who hated the whole of the message concerning him. And, of course, they hated in particular the message of the cross and the message of the resurrection. And at once they put forward two teachings and two suggestions which were de designed to deny his deity and designed to deny his atoning death and his glorious resurrection. And these uh, teachings took two main forms. The first one was an obvious one. They said that actually he never did die at all upon the cross but that he fainted, that he went off into what we call a dead swoon, and that uh, his disciples were allowed to take down the body, and that afterwards, of course, he recovered from this fainting fit and uh, was restored to health, but that they kept him out of sight because the, he and they were rather ashamed after all his claims and all his wonderful teaching that he should thus have fainted and disgraced himself and all his followers and all his teaching. They say he never died at all. It was a dead faint. Ah, it was because of that, you see, that John takes the trouble to record the fact that the soldiers went and found him already dead and broke the bones of the others and thrust the spear into his side. Proof of the fact that he literally died. It wasn't a faint. He died. And then there was another theory. And this uh, was one that was very subtle because it put itself in terms of Christianity. And it said, yes, the eternal Christ, the Son of God, did come into this world, but he never really became man truly. They say he never really had a body of flesh and blood and of bones as you and I have. No, no, they said he, he had a sort of phantom body, uh, some sort of immaterial body. They said it was inconceivable that the Godhead should do unite with flesh and blood. So he really never did take unto him human nature. He was never really born as such in the, of the Virgin Mary. But the eternal Son of God came and had a phantom body. And of course, if he had a phantom body, he went out of it and he never really died. Well, John is concerned to deny that terrible heresy also. Both those heresies were current in the early church. And their object was, you see, to detract from the person, from the wonder and the marvel of his death and the glory of his resurrection. So the apostle puts in these details in order to answer them and to silence them. That's one reason. And you notice that I am keeping strictly to the facts this morning. The second reason was this. 
to show the amazing and remarkable fulfillment of prophecy. You noticed how John kept on doing that even over the question of his robe, which they didn't tear in order to divide it and so on. And how he keeps on saying here, he says, uh, these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Fulfillment of scripture. And there are endless examples of that in the Gospels. And especially with regard to this question of his death. But here there are two in particular. One scripture said that no bones of the paschal lamb were to be broken. You remember when the children of Israel were being taken out of Egypt into Canaan, they were told to paint this blood over the lintels and doorposts of their houses so that the angel of death might pass them by. But there was a very special instruction that the bones of that lamb were not to be broken. What a peculiar detail. Ah, says John, here's a kind of verification of that. Here's the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world, and not a bone of him was broken. The Paschal Lamb was the prototype, was the adumbration, the suggestion, the prophecy. Here is the great antitype himself. The prophecy has been fulfilled. But not only that, there was a prophecy about the Messiah in the 34th Psalm and in the 20th verse. Not a bone of him shall be broken, and not a bone of him was broken. What an amazing thing this is. Ah, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. And then take the positive one. There was a prophecy in Zechariah, Zechariah 12:20, said they shall look on him whom they pierce. That again is a prophecy of the Messiah, the Deliverer, that the nation was looking for. And that's one of the prophecies in connection with him. These things were done, says John, in order that the prophecy might be fulfilled. And it's astounding how in these words, I thirst, and so on, you're getting prophecy fulfilled the whole time. Well, what is the purpose of this, says someone? Why is it important that we should realize that prophecy is thus fulfilled. Well, there are many answers to that question. I mustn't stop with them this morning. Here is one. Let's remember it as we pass along. There is nothing more important for faith and for assurance than to have a knowledge of scriptures. You read your Old Testament scriptures, and then you come to him and look at him, and you see them fulfilled one after another. Do you remember how Peter makes use of that in his second epistle in the first chapter? He says, listen to me, we have not preached unto you cunningly devised fables. I, he says, and James and John were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration and we saw him in the glory and we heard the voice from heaven. But, he says, there's not only that. We have a more sure word of prophecy. We have a word of prophecy made sure, verified to which he do well that he pay heed, as unto a lamp in a dark place, which will give you light and courage and comfort until the day star arise in your hearts. Well, here it is, the fulfillment of prophecy. It was said there that certain things would happen to him. They have happened. What a wonderful verification of God's plan and purpose. But here's another. The fulfillment of prophecy is most valuable with regard to our Lord's own person. Read Isaiah 53. 
There's a prophecy about the Messiah. The Jews didn't understand it, and it was because they didn't that they stumbled at Jesus Christ. But there is a prophecy which says that the Messiah is going to suffer, that he's going to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, that he's going to be led as a lamb to the slaughter. It's all prophesied, and here it is all fulfilled. They tell us, therefore, that Jesus is the Christ. Wasn't that the Apostle Paul's preaching? He'd go into the synagogues of the Jews on the Sundays, and these were his two points always in his sermon, that the Christ must needs have suffered. The Jews didn't believe it. They thought the Christ was to be a great military chieftain. No, no, says Paul, you as scriptures say that he's going to suffer. And the second was that Jesus is the Christ. So the fulfillment of prophecy is most valuable. But thirdly, it's important in this way. I've recorded these things, says John, in order that you may see the fulfillment and verification of prophecy. Yes, and I deduce this from it. The death of Christ upon the cross was not an accident. It wasn't something that took him by surprise. It wasn't something that took God by surprise. No, no. The very fact that it's all been predicted and prophesied right through the old dispensation is a proof that it was a part of the plan and the purpose of God. Let us not attribute too much to Pontius Pilate and to the Jews. They were mere, the mere instruments. They didn't know what they were doing. This happened, says Peter, on the day of Pentecost, according to the predetermined and foreordained counsel of God. He's the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. The plan of God was enacted in the mind of God before time, and all was determined. In the fullness of the times, he sent him to be born. In the fullness of the times, he sent him to the cross. These are not accidents. This is God's great eternal plan and way of salvation. The cross was in the mind of God before the very foundation and creation of this world. Oh, let us never, I say, lose sight of that. But come, let me call your attention to the most amazing thing of all. Why has John recorded these strange facts? I'm suggesting in the third place that he has done so in order that we might be clear once and forever. As to the actual cause of our Lord's death. Have you ever been amazed at these extraordinary details? Listen. Then came the soldiers. And break the legs of the first. And of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus. And saw that he was dead already. They break not his legs. You remember what happened. The three had been crucified together. Now the Jews, the legalists, you see, because it was the preparation and that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, that would have been a defilement. They said, you can't do that. So they sent a message to Pilate and said, look here, can we kill these three people and get rid of the bodies? We can't let the bodies be there on this special Sabbath day. So they made the request. And Pontius Pilate granted their request and sent the soldiers and the soldiers came to the one thief. He was still alive. They broke his bones. And it seems they did so with a mighty hammer. 
They just hammered them until they smashed them and so killed the, the unfortunate victim. They did that to the thief on the right. They did it to the thief on the left. Then they looked at our Lord. And to their amazement, they found that he was already dead. Now they were astounded at this. It is a very remarkable fact. Death by crucifixion is a very slow process. It simply means that a human being is nailed to the tree and he can hang there in his agony and die slowly, perhaps taking two or three days. And that was what they expected. And that is why they had to kill the two thieves because they were very much alive still. But then they looked at him in the middle and to their astonishment they found that he was still alive, that he was dead. Now, there are many things I could deduce from that. Let me just say this in passing again. Let us never forget this, that they actually did not kill him. He was dead before they had an opportunity of killing him. That's the first thing. He was dead already. Well, very well, that leads us to ask this question. What was the cause of his death? I'm bound to raise the question because these details compel me to do so. What was it that caused him to die? Why was he not alive like the two thieves? Why didn't they have to break his bones in order to kill him? And the answer is provided for us in verse 34. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith there came out blood and water. Now I ask just now, why does John bother us with such a detail? What's it matter to us as long as we know that he died? No, no, says John, I want you to know this, that a man took a spear and thrust it into his side, and that blood and water came out. Why should we know this, says someone? Well, it's important for this reason. What is the explanation of the blood and the water? Where did they come from? If you stick a spear into the body of a man who's just dead, will you get out blood and water? The answer is you won't. But here there came out blood and water. And how do you explain that? There is only one adequate explanation, it seems to me. It's not my theory, it's not original with me, but I believe it and I commend it to you. There is only one explanation of that blood and water, and that is that our Lord literally and actually suffered there on the cross in such a manner that his heart, his physical heart, ruptured, literally broke. Now, why do I say this? What's my authority? What are my grounds for saying this? Well, I'm simply telling you something that is well known to every medical man. The normal heart does not rupture. Indeed, there are authorities who would go so far as to say that it's not only extremely rare, but well nigh impossible for a normal heart to rupture, literally to burst and to break. But here I say it is the only explanation. The normal heart is in a sack. 
called the pericardium. Yes, I'm dealing with facts this morning because there's profound truth in these facts. And in that sac, that pericardium, there's just a very little fluid, a straw-colored fluid. That's what comes out of the pericardium. And sometimes none even of that. But here there came out blood and water. And it could only have happened, I say, as the result of a ruptured heart. You know, don't you, that if you allow blood to settle in a vessel, it will divide off into two portions, the blood clot and the serum, the liquid on top, blood and water. So when the man thrust in his spear, there came out blood clot and serum, blood and water, as he calls it. And as I'm saying, there's only one adequate explanation of that. And that is that our Lord's heart must have ruptured and the blood flowed into this sac, this pericardium, and perhaps even beyond it. And then it separated out into the clot and the serum. And the man thrust in his spear and out came the clot and the serum. The cause of death was a ruptured heart. His heart literally broke. Now, say the medical authorities, this is something that is not only very rare, it's well-nigh impossible in the normal heart, and yet it happened to him. Which, you see, in turn leads us to this all-important question. What was it that caused the rupturing of his heart? What is it that happened to him that made his heart burst in a literal sense? And I say there is no doubt again about this. His cry of dereliction proves it. There is only one answer and it is the intense and the unusual suffering which he endured. It was the agony that was so great that it literally burst and broke his heart. There is no other medical explanation that is adequate. And as I say, his cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, points in the same direction. What happened in the Garden of Gethsemane points in the same direction. There he was in such an agony that he began to sweat drops of blood. What makes a man sweat drops of blood? It isn't mere apprehension. It isn't mere shrinking from physical death. No, no. He knew that something so terrible was going to happen that he doubted whether he could stand up to it. And he asked if it be possible let this cup pass by. But here it happened to him. And the agony, the strain, the suffering was so intense, so terrible, that it literally burst his heart and it killed him. And he died. And the soldiers coming, expecting to have to break his legs, are amazed and are astonished. John gives us all the details. And John was guided by the Holy Spirit. Is this irrelevant matter? No, no. It brings me to the heart of our faith and of our doctrine. The Son of God died of a broken heart, a ruptured heart upon the cross. The suffering he endured caused it. What was the cause of the suffering? Well, I say again that a mere ordinary fear of death never does that. The world has had millions of people who have been afraid of death, but their hearts haven't ruptured. Many of the martyrs have known a fear of death which they've been unable to overcome. They feared the physical part, but their hearts never broke. No, no, that doesn't explain it, neither does the other explanation that is sometimes put forward. 
namely that he died of a metaphorical broken heart because he saw that his mission had failed and that even his disciples had forsaken him and fled. Disappointment doesn't literally cause a man's heart to be ruptured. Disappointment can do many things, but it doesn't literally cause a man's heart to burst because of the agony that he endures and because of the strain. But here is a ruptured heart. You see, my friends, you can't evade this problem, this question. Blood and water came out. Proof of the rupturing of his heart. What ruptured it, I say? You've got to give an account of it. You've got to explain it. And there's only one that does so in an adequate sense. And it's this. It is what the Bible itself tells us. That God made him to be sin for us. That God laid on him the iniquity of us all. That God smote him with the punishment that your sins and mine deserved. He endured the pains of hell. Upon him fell the vials of God's holy wrath against sin. He felt it in all its intensity, an eternal punishment. And the agony was so amazing and the strain so profound that it literally burst and ruptured his heart. We may not know, we cannot tell what pain he suffered there. Of course we can't. We know nothing, no man has ever known what it is to suffer the pains of hell and to experience the full blast of God's holy indignation and wrath against sin and evil. But he, having offered himself, having become the Lamb of God, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his stripes we are healed. It pleased God to strike him, to smite him. He was smitten of God. You see, my friends, John is not putting irrelevant details before us. They didn't have to break his bones while he was already dead. It had been prophesied that that would happen. Here it is. But why was he already dead? Well, the man comes and puts in his spear. Oh, God was behind all this to give us the proof. Out come blood and water. Ruptured heart. Why? The agony. The pain. The suffering. The bearing of the wrath of God against the sin of men. Thank God for these details, for this astounding explanation. But come as I leave you, shall I draw two conclusions that we all must inevitably draw? Here's the first. Is it not perfectly clear that there could have been no other way of salvation? That this is the only way? Is it conceivable, I say, that God would have allowed his only begotten son to endure that if there was any other way whereby God could forgive us? The modern man dislikes this atonement, this talk about blood. He says it's immoral, it's Jewish, it's the old sacrifices of the primitive peoples. I don't believe in it, he says. I believe God is love and that God in his love forgives my sins. Well, if that's your position, here's my question to you. Explain the blood and the water. 
Explain the blood and the water. Explain the rupturing of the heart. And you cannot. There is only one explanation of the blood and the water, the ruptured heart, and that is alone explained by this agony. And that, I say, means this inevitably, that this is the only way whereby even God can forgive us our sins. There is no other way. God would never have allowed his only begotten beloved son to pass through such a strain and through such an agony beyond our imagination. If there had been any other way whereby he could have forgiven us, there was no other way. It is the only way that God can be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. God's way of forgiveness is just and righteous and holy, he had to punish sin. He said he would. His nature insists upon it. And he did it. It is the only way. There is no way of being reconciled to God. Except through Jesus Christ and him crucified. There is no way into the holiest of all. Except the blood of Jesus. Oh, don't run away with your philosophy. You must have blood. Literal blood, the ruptured heart, the bearing of the punishment. Without blood, there is, without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. You can't get away from the facts and still retain your teaching. And finally, I would just say this. He actually endured and suffered that for you and for me. This is not just a wonderful tale of self-sacrifice, a display of love. Oh, no, no. May God give us grace never to forget this. There came out blood and water because of that agony that killed him, that ruptured his heart. He suffered it, he bore it. That's what I say makes Good Friday special. I preach the love of God in Christ and remission of sins Sunday by Sunday. But I don't always go into these details. And there is the danger that we may forget the details. It's not an idea only. No, no. He was there. He was nailed to the tree. And he bore this agony. He underwent this strain. That you might be forgiven. That I might be forgiven. Do you ever stop to consider that? Do you ever stop to consider what he suffered that you might live, the price that was paid for your forgiveness and mine? Do we ever stop? It seems that certain saintly people in the Middle Ages used to dwell so much upon these things that the very stigmata appeared in their own bodies. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I do know this. That we none of us spend sufficient time in looking at the actual facts. And meditating upon this fact. That he endured all that. That you and I might be forgiven and reconciled to God. And might become children of God. And heirs of everlasting bliss. Shall I leave it with you like this? You remember the story of Count Zinzendorf, don't you? There was a young man, yes, he'd been godly and living a good life, but still there was something lacking, and he was traveling around Europe, and he came to Dusseldorf, 
And there he went into the famous picture gallery and was arrested by that famous picture, Eke Homo, the picture of Christ and his suffering. But what hit him and what smashed Count Zinzendorf and made him the man that he became was the writing, the inscription under the picture. And here it was, as if Christ was speaking to him, all this I have done for thee. What doest thou for me? And that's the message that comes through the blood and the water from his pierced side this morning. All this. And I think we've had some insight into this all. He endured the pains of hell. All this I have done for thee. What doest thou? What art thou doing? For me. Oh, yes, says Isaac Watts. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen.